Hi, I'm Jay Thomas, and welcome to Bald Tires. Have you ever seen pictures of a prototype car in a magazine or maybe on the internet and thought, man, I'd love to get a chance to drive that or even just have a look at it in person? Well, today, my guest is a guy who's gotten to do just that for his career. Jim Kerr joins me. He's an automotive journalist, and he's been published across all of Canada. We're going to talk about his career, what got him into cars in the first place, all of the experiences he's had, some pretty cool tales. On top of his career as an automotive journalist, Jim has also been an instructor, an automotive instructor at Sask Polytechnic, teaching generations of mechanics. He's got some great stories from that career as well. Next episode, Jim's going to return to talk about a couple of cool cars, a 64 Impala SS and a 57 Ford Thunderbird, both sitting in his garage with us right now. You're listening to Bald Tires, because when you make great memories, you make bald tires. Well, I find myself in another amazing garage, and my guest today is a guy who, if you've picked up a paper in Saskatoon or Saskatchewan, even a paper across Canada, you may have well seen his name. Jim Kerr joins me right now. Jim, thanks for joining me. Hi, Jay. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. This is going to be a lot of fun. Now, you are a member of AJAC, the Automotive Journalists Association of Canada, and you've been an auto journalist for a long time. Uh, Probably about 25 years. 25 years. And that's been a pretty cool job. We're going to get into that in a little bit, too. You're also a former instructor, uh, retired from that job now, right? Yes, four years. Uh, at uh, SAS Polytech, or if you go back to the way we all used to call it, Kelsey, right? That's right. I still think of it as Kelsey. <laughs> you were an auto technical, in auto technical training, right? Right, yes. So tell me what that all covered. Like, you taught everything? We taught uh, from the beginners to uh, senior technicians that are in the automotive industry. Yep. And uh, I ended up teaching everything there from fuel injection to uh, transmission overhaul. And auto body? No. Never uh, auto body? I never taught auto body. Okay. Yeah. I took some courses in auto body and uh, of course over the years working on cars, I've learned a fair bit myself. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You just, just stuck to the sort of more mechanical aspect of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, So (laughs) yeah, like I say, if you've picked up a paper, you know, you've been in the column uh, in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, you've been in other papers all across Canada, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Winnipeg, Halifax, uh, Nanaimo, you know, some coast to coast. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, We'll talk about, you know, a a bit of those, each of those pieces of your career as we kind of go forward. But take me back, Jim. Sounds like you've been a car guy for a long time. I have most of my life. Yeah. 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 We're, we're looking actually, uh, sitting right next to me. I'll kind of hold it up. You can, you can hear it there. <laughs> looking at kind of a, I don't know, call it a toy. Uh, uh you from, thought they were poker chips. <laughs> exactly. From, from your childhood. And they are from the Jello company. Now they are wheels. They look like poker chips, but they are Jello wheels, little plastic discs, but they look like a car wheel. And they, they say on them, save all 200 picture wheels, the Jell-O brand desserts company. And they all have a number on the other side of them in a little picture. And there's all these, how many of them are here? There's 200 of them. There's 200. And you collected every one of these. Uh, well, with help. <laughs> <laughs> there were neighbors helping, my grandmothers, uh, my mother. We ate Jell-O till we were sick of Jell-O. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you remember sort of what year these came out? Uh, 1961-62 was when they came when they... out. Yeah, and you bought a package of Jell-O and there was one of these car wheels, we call them, in each package of Jell-O. So you managed to get all 200, but you must have had repeats and doubles of certain ones too, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, you could buy six packs of Jell-O and they'd all have the same number wheel in them. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you tried to trade where you could, but... You know, there are only a few people collecting them. So. These are fascinating. I mean, have you ever heard anybody else who has these or seen another collection of them? Uh, I've never seen another collection other than online. If you go online, you'll find uh, some for sale. That's really cool. They're numbered, obviously, 1 to 200, and, and every sort of stack has a different co- color. And then there's this little holder that they all sit in, but it looks like a poker chip holder. It sort yes, of has yeah. vertical slots, columns that they all slide into. And they're all in series. So the first series is 1900 to 1909, and there's 1910 to 1919, so forth, so on, up to 1960. 60, 61. 61, right. So, and a different car. In fact, number one is right in front of me, and it is the Cugnot. Now, you have to kind of know your automotive history to know what that is, but 
It's basically the first self-moving vehicle in the world, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, besides a train, like not yeah, a locomotive. There were steam trains there. There were steam and, trains, and, but this is a, a steam-powered vehicle. It's got three wheels, and it moved on a road. Right. Yeah. And most people would have no idea, you know. But going even to the newest ones, you know, which in 1961, a lot of people don't even recognize those cars. <laughs> well, that's right, because that's ancient history now as well, right? Uh-uh. I mean, here's the other stack, number 176, a 1960 Cadillac, you know? I yes. mean, that's a classic just now, so. Uh, and of course, Jello was a thing in the 50s and 60s, like it was a phenomenon, right? Oh, yes. Everybody made Jello desserts. And Jello, everything. There was savory Jello dishes too that you you know <sighs> used Jello in to make yeah. salads and all kinds of weird stuff, right? right. Yes, uh, vegetable salads, Jello salads, Jello molds that stacked on top of each other, all sorts of things. Right? I might be able to find one for you if you really, really? want one. <laughs> Making me want Jello, yeah. but uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. So, so I mean, that was something you did as a kid, yes, coll- collecting yeah. these things. Yeah. But and actually, after that, they came out with airplane wheels. Oh, really? And there were two hundred of those as well. And uh, but they weren't as popular because people didn't know airplanes back then, like they knew cars. Yeah, only maybe the guys who had been through the war knew yeah. a few of those airplanes, right? right. Yeah. But kids wouldn't have known all of them, right? No, no. But cars you could see on the street. Yeah. Yeah. That that's pretty cool. What's your first? Uh, automotive memory, like what, 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 do you, what would you think was the defining moment that made you a car guy? Oh, if, if I was to ask you that kind of a complicated question. Well, my grandfather was a blacksmith and became a licensed mechanic. Oh, way back when, when they first put licensing for mechanics into the Saskatchewan. Okay. And so I remember being in his garage and, uh, seeing old cars. Uh, I've still got some of his books that I read when I was young, like, um, uh, he was into rewinding alternator, or I shouldn't say alternators, generators right. and starter motors and, and uh, even heater motors because you couldn't buy parts. You had to rewind them. And, <laughs> right. Uh, so I've got books on rewinding these uh, motors. And uh, one of the books I've got is 1917, Modern Wireless and Telegraphy, How to Fix Radios. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So, okay, hanging around in Grandpa's garage, do you think yeah. did, did the trick for you? Well, that was part of it. Um I remember going, I was probably about seven or eight years old, and we plowed mud for a couple hours to get out of the farmyard and uh, headed to the sports car races at Davidson. Oh, cool. Yeah, there was a, an old airbase uh, 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 strip there, mm-hmm. and uh, there were many triangular airstrips in Saskatchewan, and they ran sports car club races out there. Oh, neat. Yeah, we stood in the rain all day watching these cars <laughs> race around the track. So, <laughs> Cool. Okay. So, yeah. You collect this Jello thing uh, when you uh, go to get your license. I'm sure you were the kind of kid who probably was there right right when you were 16. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Like I was too. But, but I'd been driving for years. Growing up on the farm, it was uh, you know uh, I remember being in the the farm truck, a '52 International, and Dad pulling the choke and the throttle out just or the throttle I should say just out a little bit, and I'd steer the truck, and uh, he'd walk along beside and throw bales on the back. While we were picking. <laughs> and when I needed to stop, you just turn the key off. And when you wanted to go, you turned the key on because it was in bull low and away it would start and chug away. The starter and, would just take it, you know, take yeah. it off and, from a start and, and yeah. go. So I've been driving since, you know, I was uh, probably five or six years old. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's fast forward though to your first car. What, what did you drive when you went, went for your license? I drove a 64 Chev four-door sedan with a three-speed standard transmission on the column and a six-cylinder engine. The kind of funny thing is we're sort of sitting next to something just about like that. I've had many 64s over the years. I think I'm up to like 28 or something. 28. Okay, so just to take you through this, of course, I'm in another amazing garage. Jim's garage has got to my left and to his right a 64 Impala SS black with a red interior it's just gorgeous and it's just about complete right yes, you're yep. getting just about done and to my right is a car that i've gotten to know pretty well uh from from a, another experience a 57 ford thunderbird it is red with a white interior like these colors are sensational in here i love it uh it, you know the way you and i met was we we actually sang together in a, in a choir yes um, yeah saskatoon choral society and then a couple years later i was doing a show with the saskatoon summer players was doing grease and we needed a convertible we needed something hot so i called jim and uh he was nice enough to lend us the the 57 to be a prop on the stage that kind of moved on and off oh it was fun that was uh you know what we had so much fun with this car there that was so cool 
for a for a car to be pushed onto the stage in the middle of a a play, you know, yeah. a musical, <laughs> kind of wowed the whole audience. Anyways, well, I still remember after the play, we parked the car out front, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just sat there and let people have pictures inside the car, you know, and they were just thrilled to see it on stage and then actually be able to be in the car and get their picture taken. That was fantastic. So yeah, I'm in another cool garage, obviously. Sorry, I digress because we have a 64 Chev right next to us, right? Right. And you had a, you went for your license in a 64. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, but you said a sedan. So yes. four-door? Four-door sedan. Yeah. <clears throat> Three-speed on the column. Yes, my dad's car. Yep. <laughs> Passed the first time? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, if I hadn't, you know, I think dad would have been disappointed because, you know, at that point in time, I'd been hauling grain out of the fields on the run, you know, for years. <laughs> so you were, you were an experienced driver by that point. That's yes. good. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, what did you make your first car that was actually yours? My first car that was actually mine was a 61 Chevy Nomad station wagon. Oh, cool. Loaded with everything. Really? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, I bought it off a minister with 80,000 miles on it and I sold it when it had over 300,000 miles. On Holy it. cow. Really? Yeah. That's impressive. It was probably the best car I will ever own. Really? Yes. Reliable, uh, stable, even decent fuel economy for way back then. Yep. Did you, like you drove it through high, rest of high school kind of thing? Uh, no, I bought that, uh, just after I got out of high school. Okay. Yeah. 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 Before that, uh, I drove some other cars, but, uh, you know, my grandma's 61 Comet station wagon, you know, (laughs) I I liked station wagons. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Station wagons are totally making a comeback. They are completely. And now they are actually worth quite a bit of money too. I think a lot of them just didn't survive. You know, they were the workhorses, you know, this, this two door, you know, uh, SS. I mean, people kept these because they knew it was a special car, but a station wagon, a 64 Chev station wagon was just a workhorse, a family hauler. And then it was worn out and gone. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, they'd nobody bothered to keep you, them. You just parked it at the back of the yard and left it. Yeah. And it rotted to nothing or yeah. <laughs> eventually went to scrap. Right. Like that was it. So to find them now is kind of getting, you know, I, I want to say it's probably a little more difficult to find parts for a wagon. Yeah. But the wagon was great for getting people into the drive-in. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was. Yeah. They didn't check in the back. They didn't have the flashlight looking no, at No, no. I, I had curtains in mind, you know, all the <laughs> oh, way around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was fancy. I put curtains in it and I had curtain behind the front seat because I drove it in the wintertime. And it was so hard to keep the whole wagon heated yeah. when it was 40 below. Yes. So yep. I just had the curtain that f- uh, slipped behind the back or, or the back of the front seat and it would keep the front seats really warm. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty creative. <laughs> okay. So this wagon you had, you took it everywhere, obviously. Oh yes. Yeah. Like, did you yeah. go to school in it, uh, post-secondary or anything like that? Uh, or? No, actually I was uh, teaching at the time. So oh. I uh, was using it for work. Really? Uh, and I drove between uh, different schools in a school unit, and uh, that was my mode of transportation. So you were a teacher before you were an instructor then? Like you were yes. a, a, what I would call a, a, a elementary school teacher, high school teacher, something like that? Actually, uh, I taught grades 5 to 12, and you might find it hard to believe, but I taught music. <laughs> no, I believe you. You're a good musician. That's cool. Yeah. So, so was that your was that your first choice then for for a career? Like, what what led you to the from there to into the automotive side of things? Well, I was always interested in cars, yeah. and so on. And uh, um, I think the first vehicle I actually worked on was a 1916 Chev truck. Whoa! That we had. It was the old old farm truck, and it had been parked for years. And they were wood cabs and. It just everything had rotted and falling apart. And I said to my dad, can I take that apart? And he said, sure, do whatever you want. <laughs> so uh, I took the engine apart, uh, mostly the t- whole top end, and uh, never did get it back together. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it's still sitting out in the pasture at the farm. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, but uh, you you were a teacher for a while. and yes. And then tell me how... how in life, you transition to, to uh, you know, getting into automotive journalism and, and getting, getting to be an instructor with the auto stuff at, at Kelsey. Well, um, cars were always a hobby. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I drag race uh, at the drag strip and I just, I liked high performance cars. And uh, so I thought I should learn more about it. So I went and actually took a course at uh, Saskatchewan Institute of Applied Science and Technology, now known as Sask Polytech. Right, right. And... Uh, 
when I finished my course, I was offered a real good job out of there. So oh, really? I took a job and I ended up with my journey license in automotive oh, te- technician. Cool. cool. Uh, from there, uh, I I was coming out of uh, um, uh, one of the sports car club events at one time. Okay. And uh, a lady uh, approached me that was a member in the club and said, uh, they're looking for somebody to teach some night classes up there, just in basic car care. And I thought, why, why not? It'd be an interesting way to meet people and help young people starting to drive. Yeah, sure. So uh, I started doing that. And uh, one night I was walking out uh, from class, about 10 o'clock at night after I cleaned everything up. And uh, the dean of the industrial division was walking down the hallway, stopped and took a look at me and says, we're interviewing for a position tomorrow. He said, <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And he knew me from uh, different things, but uh, he said, it's just a, a temporary position uh, for three weeks only. Um, would you be interested? And I said, sure. You know, why not? Yeah. And so I went in the next morning and interviewed and uh, they hired me on the spot for three weeks. 37 years later, <laughs> I, I left. <laughs> Holy. So it just snowballed one thing into the next, yes, basically. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. They wanted to have you around, obviously. Well, it worked out well. It, uh, it really did. And uh, I had a very good career there. And uh, uh, I figure I had probably about 15,000 students. 15,000. So, so chances are, if, you're, uh, if you've gone through the, the Polytech course, you know, because you retired, you said, three or four years ago, right? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. But before then, you would have had contact with all those students that have all become mechanics or, or done different automotive stuff around... The province. Yeah. The terrible thing now is they still recognize me, but I don't recognize <laughs> them in most cases. Some I do, but, uh, you know, they change a lot from the time they're 19, 20, 21 to being 45. <laughs> That's right. Oh, your hair falls out. You know, you drink a few more of these and you get a beer gut. And uh, You're uh, talking about me, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, uh... Let me, let, let me ask you this then. So to become an automotive journalist, share that story with me. How did you get into that club or what, what led you to that? Well, again, it was just a, a fluke. Uh, it was another nice lady that... Uh, <laughs> I got to meet some of these. Yeah, that uh, I was a member of the sports car club and uh, she was approached to see if she could uh, write some articles for the paper okay. by the automotive editor there. And she said, no, she wasn't any good, but she thought... I know somebody that might be. So she recommended me and uh, I met up with the editor and and I uh, said to him after lunch, uh, you know, I could probably write three or four and, you know, by then I'd be out ideas and, and so on, but we'll give it a try. And uh, so uh, I started writing articles and uh, 25 years later, it was weekly articles every week, uh, sometimes two or three a week. That's pretty cool. Now that at that time when you started... That was for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix? Yes. Yeah. And and at that point in history, like what year are we talking roughly? What do you think? Oh, that was back in the early 90s. Early 90s. So they had an, their own automotive column, in fact, automotive section of the paper. Right. But it was locally produced then at yes, that point? Yes, it was locally produced. So, so now uh, stuff is shared amongst a lot of papers, right? Yes, yeah. In fact, I think everything comes out of Toronto now for... It's changed a little bit yeah, with how that mostly works. Mostly wire surface stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you, you were one of uh, the team here in Saskatoon... And then how did you apply to become part of the the Association of Canada, the AJAC part? Um, Another friend uh, just recommended me. You had to have a couple people uh, recommend you for Mm -hmm. membership. Mm -hmm. And you had to be publishing in uh, newspapers. or uh, Newspapers were the only thing really uh, At the time. I suppose maybe a magazine. A magazine. uh, Some wrote books and so on. But uh, newspaper were the most common. Yeah. And uh, so I was sponsored and uh, I joined... I think back in 95. Oh, really? Yes. So if anybody, uh, you know, I'm sure listening now has heard of AJAC, you've heard of the AJAC Awards. Like, have you been part of the team to pick those cars? Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Go down uh, east and the manufacturers supply all the new vehicles for that year. And we test drive them over uh, a course uh, over several days. And uh, then we vote and it's all blind voting. So... uh, Nobody knows who the winner is until it's actually announced. 
Really? Yes. Okay, so this is where I think you probably have a thousand stories, Jim, because like so much, so many cool things have happened with being part of, of the Automotive Journalists Association of Canada. Like, walk us through this. Um, when you got started with them, at that point, were they sending you vehicles all the time? Is that how it worked then? They started sending me vehicles uh, after I joined. Yeah. Um, I've had you know hundreds of vehicles over the years uh, here in Saskatoon. But I also traveled to other places to test drive vehicles. So yeah, that was really neat. I remember when we were singing together at the time in that choir. I was always asking you, "Hey, what do you got this week? You know, what's yeah. <laughs> what did they send you?" So as it would work, is is you know, it would call come from out east, right? Right. And they would get the latest. Sometimes, sometimes even models released before they had come to dealers. Is that true? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, you got to drive times. stuff that wasn't even really for sale yet. Oh yes, yeah, many times. Uh, especially if I traveled uh, to another location. Mm, yes. You know, the vehicle might not be released uh, for most cases, usually a month or two, but sometimes I drove vehicles that won't, wouldn't be released for two or three years. Wow. So you probably had to sign a lot of agreements. Uh, <laughs> well, li- limiting what you could talk about with those things, there, right? There are embargo agreements. Embargoes, yeah. yeah. And uh, so if you don't follow the embargoes, you soon don't get invited yeah. to, to drive any of these vehicles. I bet. Uh, so it's kind of a mutual respect thing. Yeah. But uh, I also made friends with many of the engineers because of my technical background. And uh, we spoke the same language. And they quickly realized when I started asking questions about things that most people don't ask questions about. And that I knew something about it. They would tell me things that uh, normally they're not supposed to talk about. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But I always kept them to myself. I used them as kind of background information to uh, uh, help develop stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give me an example of um, like what, what was your favorite unveiling that you ever went to? Because I mean, you must have gone to hundreds of these things where you traveled to different parts and got to see these new cars. What, 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 what's a memorable one that stands out in your mind? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Maybe the Jaguar S type. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which was in Washington, DC. Okay. Uh, the unveiling of it. Um, we actually went out and drove the vehicles through some beautiful countryside and so on. Um, I remember having supper on the presidential launch. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, so they, they'd arranged this and, uh, there's the presidential emblem on the floor in the carpet and so on. And this was the launch. It was uh, available for charter uh, when the president wasn't using it. And uh, they chartered it and we had lunch as we motored down the river. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Now, some of these, some of these events, like you got some, I've heard you've kept some of the swag you've been given. There's been some pretty neat presentations with some launches of some new vehicles, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, well, most of it is press kits. Right. Yeah, and press kits have changed big time over the years. Uh, it used to be we'd get a, a full-size binder that's about three inches thick with pictures and tape. And In fact, I've got an example on the shelf over here. But uh, now everything's online. Right. Yeah, and we, we transfer... Or, um, went from big binders to uh, CDs. Uh, then oh, yeah. We went to thumb drives, and now everything is just online. For a big a big press release yeah. like that. So I've kept a few of the uh, more interesting ones around. Give me an example. Um, the 1998 New Beetle launch. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It came in a, um, a yellow box, and uh, it's got the actual photographs of the new beetle and there's slides if people remember slides <laughs> uh, and so on um it's got all the write-up about it there is um um a bud vase inside then many people wouldn't know but when you bought the new beetle there was a little plastic bud vase on the dash yes and it, uh, it came with a plastic flower in it. Now, now that is because the original Beetle had an accessory that you could buy. That's right. Right? Yeah, there were bud vases on the B-pillars. On the B-pillars that you right. could buy and attach and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and when they released the new Beetle, I mean, it was such a... It really did make headlines at the time, right? Like, it was such a revolution because, you know, it was, it was mixing old with new. And there wasn't a lot of companies at that point that had done a lot of that yet, right? No, that, was, whole, that was pre-economy car days. Yes, right. And, and 
you know, that new Beetle was just, I, I remember I was a kid and I remember going in to see the new Beetle at the Volkswagen dealership and getting one of the first brochures. And even the brochure was very European. It had sort of translucent paper in it and, you know, the, the pages did sort of different tricks and there, it was, I think I still have it actually, but, but you got a press kit that with a vase in it and, and yep. like they were going for a big splash with this. Right. And there's a little metal holder in there so you can set it on the table and put the bud vase in it, you know, <laughs> just to remind you of your new beetle. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So mm. traveling all across North America, do you ever go to Europe for a press, press release? I, I've had offers to go there, but uh, just time-wise, it wasn't worth it. And I, I know many people that do travel uh, like that, but uh, it's not as glamorous as you think because you're on a plane for 14 hours. Mm -hmm. You get off, you drive vehicles for maybe six hours, you sleep overnight in a hotel, and you're back on a plane for another 14 hours. So. It's not a vacation. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. Um I want to go back for a second. You talked that you, you know, you got to talk with a lot of engineers on some of these cars and such. Mm -hmm. Could you give me an example? Uh. Is there ever, was there ever anything that you can think you can take credit for, for changing on a vehicle? Yes. Uh, I want to hear that story. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, we were driving the uh, uh, new Lincoln Aviator. Oh, the one that has recently come out? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like yeah. it's only <clears throat> been on the market, what, two years, two I think? Two years. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's got uh, automatic cruise control in it. Distance sensing cruise control yep. will stop lane, behind cars. Lane and, keep assist, all those things, right? Yeah, and one of the features is it reads road signs. And so the cruise, you set it at uh, 100 kilometers per hour. If the road sign changes to 110, the cruise will automatically step up to 110 kilometers per hour. Okay, yeah. Well, you can fine-tune it. Let's say that you want to drive a little slower than that or a little faster you could put in, uh, I want to drive on the information system, you could put in, I want to drive 10 kilometers per hour faster. Mm -hmm. So if the speed limit's 100, the vehicle would actually cruise at 110. Okay. Okay. Which, or you could even set it, I think, up to 120 kilometers per hour oh, if, you're, wow. if the speed limit's 100. Yeah. Which is fine, maybe on the highway at 100 kilometers per hour, but when you came to a school zone at 30 kilometers per hour, it was still 20 kilometers per hour over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a serious offense. That is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we came back and said, you know, it's a neat feature, but rather than do it in miles per hour or kilometers per hour, why don't you do it in percentage? Oh. Yes. So now I can set it so that it's, you know, 2% over or 5% over, and it doesn't matter what the speed limit is, it's only going to be over by that little bit or less than that by a little bit. Right. So if you're, if you only have it at 50, at 2%, you're really only going to be going 51 in a 50 zone. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, even less in a 30, a 30 zone. So it, it but 2% at a hundred kilometers an hour is going to be 102 or 102. whatever. Right. right. So. Yeah. So it'll, it'll save you from that sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. That's smart. So uh, we talked to the, the public relations person uh, about this here, and uh, he got on the phone and talked to the engineers, and they said, oh, that's a software change, and we can do that quite easily. Really? So that's been implemented. And they put it into production. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, another example uh, was um, it was Hyundai. Okay. And uh, we were driving one of their vehicles on the West Coast, and the cup holders and the cigarette lighter or power outlet uh, interfered with each other. Oh. So, and they, for some reason, hadn't twigged on this, but we had our phones plugged in. And, and then you couldn't put a, a cup into the cup holder. That's right. Hmm. So we talked to them about it, and these were pre-production vehicles, or, you know, they were coming out in about a month. And uh, they changed it before the production vehicles came out. Really? So they are responsive to the input. Really? That's interesting. I, I, do you think it was because you were an automotive journalist? Or do you think companies ever consider the public's opinion with some of this stuff? Oh, I think they definitely consider public opinion. You know, they do all kinds of surveys and have people driving these vehicles beforehand and so on. But unless you just use them in day-to-day -day type situations, you sometimes miss things. Yeah, you know, mm. a, exa an example is uh, I've got a Honda CRV as a daily driver, right? Mm. And for me, it's perfectly comfortable. But when I got the vehicle, I joined the you know Facebook group, and there's a there's an online uh, web forum and stuff like that, all based in that car. And a lot of people said, "Oh, you know what? 
I, I really want like just another two inches added to the armrest. You know, like a lot of people complained that the right armrest just wasn't quite long enough to keep your elbow on it and still grab a hold of the wheel. Like it was too short. Mm. And I wonder if, if uh, say a company ever, mm. you know, reads that online or takes that into account. Do you think they ever... I think to change in, uh, when it's already in production is pretty difficult. Yes. And very expensive. Yes. But the next generation or next redesign of the vehicle, I think they would consider it. I, I would suggest, yeah. I, and I could probably even say I, I could see that because that generation of vehicle that I have, I'll say the headlights are kind of poor. Uh, you know, they're a, a single bulb to dual filament in them. And ah, they're, you know. Yeah. They're not great. Mm-hmm. The next the next uh, redesign of that, so same body, but just a refresh on it, they changed to have quad headlights, yeah. an actual separate high and low beam head, headlight bulb, which worked a thousand times better. I've driven one and was like, wow, well, mm-hmm. they, you know, they did such a better job on this. They clearly listened, actually. Uh, and sometimes they just make a mistake that's uh, overlooked. Uh, I remember... Uh, test driving a Dodge Club Cab uh, several years ago. <laughs> okay, yeah. And uh, I hopped into the front seat and adjusted the seat for me. And I'm fairly tall, so I had the seat quite a ways back. And then I wanted to see what the rear seat legroom was in this Club Cab. And they're fairly small in the back for a Club Cab. So I hopped in the back and I closed the Club uh, Cab door. Yep. And uh, I'm sitting in the back. Yeah, checked out the legroom. It's tight. I go to get out and the door handle opens into the side of the front seat and it won't open far enough to let me open the door. I'm stuck in the back <laughs> of this club cab <laughs> and nobody else is around. Oh boy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I've done a couple similar things, but <laughs> it was, uh, uh, there I was climbing over the f- back of these front seats to try and get out of this truck. <laughs> So they kind of uh, missed the mark with the door handle yeah. on that one. But it just, you know, depended on the position of the front seat. And I just happened to have it in that position. Where so if you would have had a short person driving, it, it no would have problem. cleared the seat. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. Now, without having to name names or cars or things like that, have you ever had a vehicle that you got to test drive that you actually despised? Um. Did that happen very often? Not very often that I despise. I've had vehicles that have had problems. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, one fairly popular European make, uh, I had top-of-the-line vehicle that I had to have towed three times in a week. Whoa! Just because of electrical system problems. Wow. Um, another vehicle, another manufacturer, uh, um, air suspension problems oh yeah Yeah. and people might think of the new dodge ram uh, pickup Mm -hmm. but it wasn't one of those oh really no (laughs) (laughs) yeah everybody knows the ram problems around here and i just talked to the manufacturers and say you know this may not be typical of the vehicle you know if you want to ship me another vehicle i'll test it and when if it's the same thing happens then that's going to be in my story if it's not the same thing then you know uh, you've got to temper it because there's always a vehicle now and then it has problems. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you get, you just get one that <laughs> had, had an issue. I don't know if you call it, you know, being made on a built on a Friday or, you know, just one, one series of that part were incorrectly produced. Right. That can right. happen too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And with electronics and electronic modules, you never know when something is going to fail on it. That uh, is no fault of the manufacturer electronics fail all the time take a look at new tvs yes you know or fridges <laughs> uh, yeah they're they're you know well, well known for failing now but on that topic let's talk about that for a second because i'm actually i had this conversation with my dad recently and i'm actually impressed though with electronics in cars for the most part because think about what some of the electronics in your modern vehicle go through the extreme heat and the extreme cold and they tend to keep working especially more modern ones, you know, but there are still, you know, vehicles from the nineties driving around with electronic fuel injection systems and those computers are still working. Oh yes. Yeah. You know, and they haven't failed because of the weather. Yeah. That's impressive. Well, when you take a look at electronic components, there is actually uh, designed a lifespan into some of these here. Okay. I shouldn't say designed. There is a lifespan for some of them and uh, they might build a million resistors. Yep. And they'll test them. And I don't, not sure exactly how they test them, but the top percentage 
will go to companies like NASA and so on, where they can't have failures. Right, know? right. These, these things are, uh, if it fails, you know, there's a backup system and so on, but... Well, we're talking, if, you know, spaceships are, yeah. depending on this, working. And that resistor might cost you $100. Okay. Well, the one beside it didn't test so well. It might be sold for 17 cents. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah. so the, and there's a ver variety in between. So there is kind of a predicted lifespan for many of these components and automotive electronics. Yeah. They tend to buy higher end electronic components. Yeah. And I mean, it probably varies by company as well, because there are certainly some automotive companies, uh, let's just say are, you know, not as well known for their electronics lasting or being dependable, but there are certainly ones that are, right? Yes, yeah. And I think for the most part, you're, you're going to find them fairly reliable. I just think that it's impressive that even in our cold that we can get a car to start, never mind the mechanical side of it, just that the fact that electronics all work. But if you leave your iPhone or your cell phone outside at minus 30 it doesn't work anymore. Yes. Right. Yeah. So they must, they must still do things to protect these components or water seal them and all kinds of stuff. Right. Oh yeah. And in many cases, it's not the components themselves. It's usually the wiring. Oh, but in the last few years, the, the type and style of connectors and the way they're sealed and so on, it's gotten so much better that even that's uh, an improvement. I heard though, that there have been some companies that have used like, uh, um, I don't know what you call it. It's a new biodegradable kind of wiring and the mice are really going after it. Yes. Yeah. Like it's, it's uh, based on soy or so, soy based, uh, insulation. Right. So it's, it's the, the vinyl that you see around, around the wire, the metal to, wire to protect it. So the wires don't short together and so on. And, uh, there's several companies that are using it. Uh, you know, it's environmentally, it's very good. Yeah. Except that rabbits like it, <laughs> mice like it. <laughs> oh, I was just down at the lake last week and uh, there's all kinds of little bush bunnies around. Yeah. They will go underneath the vehicle and start chewing on the wiring harness because it tastes good and you have to get your vehicle towed to oh my gosh. the garage. So. Holy cow, really? <laughs> they may be cute, but they're not welcome. <laughs> No kidding. Uh, what do you think about, uh, while we're on the topic of wiring, um, I had a vehicle, a 99, that, you know, probably 10 years later, was actually having wiring issues in uh, the hatch that opened, the wires that constantly flexed back and forth. Eventually, the coating broke down on them, and they shorted out. Right. Do you think that this new wiring will do that, or have they, have, have they gotten past those issues with, with most manufacturers? Um. There are different grades of wiring. Yeah. You know, uh, different types of insulations and so on. There's high temperature insulations. Uh, the wiring that's inside, if it's braided, it's much more flexible mm. and so on. Uh, solid core wire would break very easily if it's being flexed. Right. Um, most of the wires we see now in vehicles are multi-strand. But anything that has to move, such as a tailgate and so on, if it was replaced with uh, a braided wire... It's much more flexible and it would last and forever. It, and it wasn't even the wire inside that broke. It was simply the coating broke down, yeah. you know, on the wire and the vinyl coating. And then once that, it sort of flaked off those bare metal, you know, wires connected with the body or other, other wires and, and just shorted out. So, but, but you take anything that's plastic in your house and set it outside in the environment for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, the plastic usually just shatters if you, uh, touch it you know so the the insulation is good but uh it's got, got a lifespan and and there, just... there must be grades though because i've there's certain brands that uh, don't seem to have that issue even 25 years old and other brands that have that issue yeah right and that's one of the reasons when i'm wiring my own vehicles is i've collected wiring harnesses up from vehicles over the years stripped them apart and taken the wiring out of it and use that to wire my own vehicles <laughs> simply because I know it's, it's good wiring automotive rather than just uh, a roll of wire you buy off the shelf someplace. Right, right. Makes sense. Uh, so you're part of Ajax. You're still part of Ajax. You're still writing yeah, some stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. And they're sending you cars all the time. Um, what, what do you think was the f your favorite car they ever sent you, Jim? <laughs> what was the best experience you ever had with a car they sent you? Because, like, I guess we'll explain to the listeners, you know, you work out of Saskatoon, and a car would simply arrive 
from out east on by rail, mm-hmm. correct? Right. And you'd pick it up at the rail yards and spend your time with it, and then you would put take it back, and would it go further west yet? Is that how it worked? Uh, it could go east or west, okay. depending on which way uh, it's going to another journalist. Yeah. Uh, some of them come by rail, some come by truck. Oh, okay. Uh, others are delivered in person. There's, oh, really? Yeah, there's a company that actually drives vehicles from city to city and delivers them in person. Fascinating. Yeah, that'd be quite the job. Wouldn't it? <laughs> that wouldn't be so bad at all. I'll sign up for that. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, oh, my favorite one, uh, I think maybe, um, a Porsche. Oh yes. Uh, guards red with tan interior. Oh, uh, perfect. Cayman S. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's got the front trunk and it's got a rear hatch for cargo. So, mm-hmm. and, uh, although there was a 2012 Cayman R, which was very limited production. Yep. And, uh. They're actually selling now more than what they were new. Really? Yes. Was that Cayman S that you had manual or automatic? It was manual. It was manual. Perfect. The the automatics are so good these days. They are. And uh, for the average driver. And they're actually faster than the manual transmissions as far as acceleration and shifting and so on. But I just love the feel of a manual transmission. Okay, yes, totally. I mean, uh, while we're on this topic, I, I got to drive a Cayman S uh, for a week a couple years ago as well. 2018, I want to say. Maybe it was 19. Uh, it was for the Saskatoon Hospital Home Lottery. It was an early bird prize. And my former job working in radio, I got to drive it for a week uh, and and kind of uh, demo it around town and talk about it. But that, it was it was the automatic. And I mean... You know, I think it's a dual clutch in that thing, right? So yeah. the, the the shifts are just lightning fast. and and But that had such, even the automatic, that car had so much feedback, you know, through the wheel. It was so well damped, but yet you had feedback through the suspension. And I, I there was just almost nothing like driving that car, you know? Yeah, yes, it's, you're paying a lot of money for it, but it's been put into suspension design really in the yeah. car because you, you get the handling plus the ride comfort where there are other cars out there, the Honda S2000, you know, you could compare that to mm-hmm. the car mm-hmm. to the Porsche, which handles every bit as well, but it, it's a firmer ride. So yeah. it's not as comfortable. It's a little bit harsher. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That was a, that was a super fun car. And I, and I, I'm with you too, because yes, the automatic is faster technically, but it's all about the feeling. I think that's why we drive, really, right? You know, I think that's why we drive what we drive with classics and whatever else we choose. Well, car people are passionate about what they drive. Yeah, right? And and for me, it's not really, I mean, yeah, it's cool. Numbers are great. Those are kind of ni- fun bragging rights. But mm-hmm. I, you know, that kind of wears out and that's kind of a shallow thing. I, I myself would be much more interested in what it feels like to drive that car. Like I would pick the manual as well. Yeah. So yeah. you, sh- so you lose a, a half a second or whatever on your zero to 60 time, or maybe three quarters of a second. Or if you're terrible at rowing the gears, you lose a couple seconds, yeah. but you know. We, we, we kid that it's an anti-theft device because <laughs> very few people can drive a manual transmission. <laughs> well, they're, they're just not common. You know, you know this even more than I do, I'm sure. But how many cars do you think we have left new on the market to have a manual? There oh. are a, a dozen or two, oh, like it's at very, most. Very, very rare. Right? Yes. Even the high-performance sports cars are mostly automatics now. That's right. I mean, I know Jag is gone. Yeah. Porsche, you can still get one, yeah. right? Even, but Even like Corvette, most of those are now automatics. They're mostly automatics. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and it's almost going away in the economy cars now, too. Do you know that the newest Honda Civic, for example, only the hatchback is going to have a manual? Yeah. The sedan won't even come with one. It doesn't even, it's not even an available option. And the Honda Fit is gone, so there's no manual in that left. There's, they got rid of the manual in the Honda Accord, for example. But, you know, Toyota's only got a couple left that have manuals. And Mazda's only got a handful left. And, and the, even the cheap stuff is gone. But it's a small percentage of the population that ever bought manuals in, yeah. in, the, in the last decade. So it's, it's hard to justify building a separate manual transmission and all the related stuff that has to go into the car right. for a, such a small percentage of the population. You got to hope that there are, are car people that work at car manufacturing companies. How has that been with your experience? And the reason I'm getting at it is that I, I think that like, say a company like Toyota or Honda or Mazda, those, they must have car people working for them 
to still go after that market. Somebody in inside on inside loop that is still pushing to have a manual transmission be sold, right? Uh, I think there are definitely some. Yeah, uh, Mazda is a great example uh, where our, I've driven many of their sports cars and so on, even their sedans. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got manual transmissions, and uh, but Mazda in California. Uh, their engineers and uh, technical people mostly race. Oh, really? Yes, they're out on, uh, the, well, there's Maga- Mazda uh, uh, Laguna Seca racetrack. Yep, right. Yeah, and many of them road race out there all the time. So that must be part of what keeps Mazda in that sort of sporty, call it the sportiest out of, out of the regular, you know, everyday vehicles, you know. It's almost like Mazda has gotten to that level now, sort of a place where Honda used to be about 15 or 20 years ago. But out of all the imports, you could almost call Mazda sort of the most, mm. the most sporty handling of all, in every class of vehicle that they sell, right? Uh, I'd have to agree. Yeah. The, uh, but the engineers on the racetrack, they want that feedback into their steering wheel, yes. into the seat of the pants kind of stuff. And then when they hop into their, <clears throat> excuse me, their everyday car, you know, they miss that. So they want to plan to put that back in, mm-hmm. but still keep the ride comfort. Yeah. You know, and, and they've done some amazing things. Uh, one of their uh, things with their steering is uh, just steering stability going around corners. Okay. And it's, it's a software program written into the computer that you would not even know is there. Really? Yeah. There's no on-off switch. There's nothing there. But when you go around a series of corners uh, on a sweeping uh, highway. Yep. Uh, it just stabilizes the car ever so slightly so that you don't have those little tiny steering inputs all the time to correct going around the line. Really? Yeah. And, uh, it just makes the car smoother and less tiring to drive. Even for passengers, it's less tiring because you're not bracing (laughs) against, uh, the movement of the car. Is that something that you got to pick up at, at, uh, at a press release or did you, were you able to learn that from people actually talking to Mazda engineers? Uh, I learned that talking to Mazda engineers about it and uh, the software and so on. But then I actually got to uh, try it in vehicles uh, where uh, they took videos of us with the steering wheel inputs and so on with the system turned on and then with it off. They had uh, dual computers in the car that they could just switch between and uh, on the same course and so on. And you could see that when it was switched on, the steering wheel movement was very, very slight and very smooth and with it switched off there was always just little tiny corrections wow and but they don't advertise that in their uh, sales brochures or anything no it's just it's a fact of driving the mazda how how you feel about it see you've got such a, a lucky uh perspective when it comes to a lot of this stuff there there's that's just one example there must be hundreds of things that you've gotten to learn that nobody else really gets to know about <laughs> well that's pretty cool other people learn about it too, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think my technical background allows me to, uh, cor- correlate it maybe better than a lot of people mm-hmm. because, uh, I'm a technician who learned to write Okay, where, where others are writers that are learning about the technology. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably more common in the field. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. Like you probably stand out in that way. Uh, like, like I say, most people probably are interested in being journalists and, and are interested in cars, but don't, don't necessarily have all of the technical know-how that you have. Yeah, there, there's probably, I don't know, maybe half a dozen across Canada that really are into the technical end of things. Of course, too, you uh, got to grow up in a fantastic, okay, I'll say time, when, you know, at that time when you were growing up, you could take a car and work on it and learn about it and those things. You know, I, I even feel that people, kids these days... We will struggle to keep keep the car community alive, or we'll struggle to keep uh, guys and gals interested in cars because there's so many fewer things you can do yourself now, you know, in your own shop, in your own garage, on your new car. Yes, but but the, it's changing. You think you so? Know, yeah, they can now hook a laptop up and go in and uh, modify some of the things on vehicles. Yeah, okay, fair enough. You know, so it, it's a different type of uh, technology that we're dealing with. You know, they may change injectors where we used to bolt a different carburetor on. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. And so on. Yeah. Uh, they're still into wheels and tires. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, not just the look, but the handling improvements and, and sway bars and those Yeah, I suppose suspension, ha- you know, the technology has gotten better, but it's still a lot of the same 
similar components or right. same kind of work that you're doing when you're taking things apart and putting them together. Yeah. And uh, the manufacturers in most cases have compromises. You know, they have to build a vehicle for grandma to drive uh, as well as the enthusiast. Yeah. And so the, there's compromises in there and changing things like shock absorbers or struts and sway bar sizes and so on. You can make significant improvements to even a brand new car. Uh, just to tailor it to your driving style. Hmm. But uh, it takes some research and uh, sometimes trial and error. Yeah, I bet it does, right? The good thing is, though, that with the internet community that's out there, generally there's somebody that's done it already. Yeah. So you can, you can ask somebody else, so what did you do and, and, uh. and how, what were the results, you know? And you can get a lot of feedback that way. Uh, yeah. And there's, a, there's a, an online community of some kind on Facebook or on, on somewhere for just about every car out there. There is. It's. Uh, I've been doing some research. Uh, I've got a '67 El Camino. Yeah. And I want to upgrade the suspension on it because when you go into a corner with it now, it's uh, a marshmallow trying to. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but there's a whole online community and uh, manufacturers that make suspension parts for them that will make them handle almost like a brand new car. Yeah. No kidding. And you can and you can really change things if you want to as well, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you can really customize things on an El Camino should you want to. But I mean, I, I'll take it as an example. I've got a Honda Fit, you know, tiny little economy car. It's a blast to drive. But there is a huge online community across the whole globe, especially in in uh, other countries in, in in Asia and stuff, where I mean, there's aftermarket parts galore for it, and everybody's done a thousand different things to it. So. Sky's the limit with some of that stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've you seen know. Toyota Echo. Yeah. You know, yeah. the old Echo with performance parts on it from other parts of the world because the price of fuel was so high there that they couldn't afford big cars or so on, but they could have the, the handling goodies, the styling goodies. Yep. So they could on. take that Echo and turn it into yep. the sports car they wanted, right? And there were even turbocharger kits for them and so on. That's crazy, <laughs> hey? That's crazy. Uh, so these days, you still get cars that come to you? I've had some recently. Yeah. Over, over the past year, it's been pretty quiet just because of restrictions in transporting cars, uh, travel mm. between provinces All and that. so on. Yeah. But uh, in the last few weeks, I think I've had five vehicles. So Holy cow. Yes. It's just uh, it's back online again, back in the stream. Yeah. If people want to find more of what you've written, where do they go? Um, probably uh, uh, Halifax Chronicle Herald. Okay. Be quite a good place to take a look. Yeah. Uh, Winnipeg Free Press. Okay. Yeah, it'd be another place. Awesome. To find some of the stuff. Okay, very cool. Very cool. Jim, we're going to have to leave it right there for right now. Uh, you know what? Next time, let's get you back on the show and let's talk about a couple of cool cars right beside us. This 64 Black Impala SS, just about done, ready for the roads, and that beautiful 57 Ford Thunderbird beside us as well. Thanks for joining us in the meantime and listening. You can always find more podcasts like this, jthomasauto.ca. You're going to see pictures up there of what we're talking about today too. And yeah, more to come with Jim next time. I'm Jay Thomas. This is Bald Tires.